We're four sermons and counting this one away from finishing the letter to Ephesians. I told you when we started, I thought it would be about 20 to 24 sermons. And as things have broken out, that's obviously been extended to about 30 so far. So we'll end up in the 34 range. And I trust, though, based on the feedback that I've received, that you guys have been being blessed by this and that God is doing a work among us. And I'm grateful for that. The the gospel literally changes everything. Literally, the gospel changes everything. If you don't receive anything else, if you're not getting anything else out of this letter, especially the second half, I hope that you'll see that. The gospel changes everything. The first half of Paul's letter was all about the gospel. It, it may not have gone to the lengths and to the depths and breadth of the letter of Romans does, but it gives us clear doctrine. It gives us a depth of understanding. It gives a clear presentation of what God has done and is doing through Jesus Christ. He presents to us, Paul presents to us, the gospel. And then he takes the second half of this letter and he turns around and then he begins to apply it directly to us. And he begins to show us the work of the gospel at work in us coming out of us and begins to show us how that we aren't just supposed to be recipients of it, but we're to be active in the process of our sanctification. Hear me, active in our process of sanctification, not our justification. The gospel justifies us. But then in this letter, Paul calls us, commands us to to pursue a holy lifestyle, to, to take what God is doing in us and make it perceptible to the world around us, to take what God is doing in us and make it active in our life so that everybody else can begin to see it. The gospel literally changes us from the inside out. And that's really what Paul's been getting at. It changes us. It changes everything about our perspectives and our motives. It changes how we see things, who we interact with, and how we interact with people. It changes us. It changes our family life and our family relationships. And it even changes our work ethic. It changes how we labor, how we serve, how we work. And that's really what the passage this morning is getting at. Now, over the last several weeks, we've been dealing with this with this section that started with husbands and wives and parents and children, and really actually even started before that with Paul calling us to submit ourselves to one another as a result of the Spirit's work in us. But these, particularly in this section with, with husbands and wives and, and parents and children, this is a household code. What Paul is giving us is a perspective for how households are supposed to function. And even in this culture, in this context, the slaves and masters would have been inside the home. But, but let me just break it out for you so you can kind of see how it all works together because I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees because we focus specifically on each role as we've done this. And so we've, we saw wives called to submit to husbands, willfully to give up their own desire in order to follow the husband's authority and submit under the husband's authority to willfully choose to do that, not to be forced into it, but to willfully give up their own desires so that they could submit under the husband's authority. The husband is to give up themselves and their desires and their will in order that they love their wife like Christ loved the church. So they exercise authority graciously. And they love their wife sacrificially, purposefully, actively, proactively, and constantly, just like Jesus did. It requires them to give themselves up, to submit themselves to their wives in order for that to happen. Parents are called to teach their children to obey, and children are called to obey their parents. It's easy to see the children's role and it's their submission. Obey, period, end of story, end of subject. If you're a child in here, 
If you're a young child in here, let me say a little different because we're all children of someone, but we're not all young children. If you're a young child, you're called to obey. This, This command is directly pointed to you. Paul addressed you. He didn't forget you. He wrote this command so you could hear it. Obey your parents. End of story. As long as you're under their authority, as long as you're living in their home, as long as you're a young child, you should be obedient to your parents. But then he goes on and says, parents, you're to submit to your children by ensuring that they are raised, that they are disciplined and instructed in the Lord. And what we see happening is we see Paul putting together what the Christian gospel-centered marriage is supposed to look like. It becomes the foundation of the home, right? And then as parents, as husbands and wives, cleave to one another, submitting to one another, perfecting their roles or living in their roles for one another, they then take a position in the family as the authority in the family. Together they do this. And parents are in, in, in... they are expected and instructed to discipline their children and to bring them up in the Lord. That means, parents, that your submission to your par- to your children is to ensure that you make a priority out of disciplining them and instructing them and raising them up in the Lord. The reality is this this whole thing. I missed this point last week. You're going to get it this week just because I can't leave it. I've got to say it. Parents, your role, your function is to prepare your children to be blessed by God. Honor your father and mother. It's the first command with a, with a promise. And the promise is so that you will live for long and enjoy the, the land. I've totally butchered that, but ultimately that's the idea. Parents, you're to instruct and prepare your children for that. That's, there's a point that comes that they are responsible for themselves and they're going to they're gonna either honor and obey or they're not. But you, parents, are like a basketball coach. You will always hold some responsibility. Even though your foot never touches the floor, you will always hold some responsibility in what happens in the game. That's your role. That's your function. And you're to submit your life. You're to give up your desires. You're to give up your wants and the things that you enjoy doing to ensure that your children get there. So we have the, the husband and wife standing over the children, preparing them for a day that they step out into the world and become servants or masters. That's how it all functions. Every child grows up, every husband and wife live in this reality that they are either a servant or a master. That's the way it happens. There's not a person in this room that this doesn't apply to. You are either a servant or a master, and likely you are both. Because there's no such thing as living in a world without authority. You may just act like you don't, but the reality is you do. In the culture Paul was writing to, this was the predominant makeup of the home, was the the husband and wife, the children, and slaves and masters. This was the predominant makeup. Now, the Industrial Revolution has changed this, and so now work doesn't happen in the home like it used to. Now we all go outside of our homes to work. But before the Industrial Revolution, this was commonplace. This was normal. In fact, you can still see it in third world countries. Last time I was in Kappa, the the village that we uh, are working in, partnering with South Haven, the most remote village we're working with there, I was able to go to a jeweler, to a baker, to a blacksmith, and to, what was the other one? I don't remember. But anyway, there was four, four places I went to, but when I went to their shops, I was also standing in their homes. In fact, I saw the jeweler's stuff. He was sitting out. He had this little fire that was burning, a little pump that he was, and he was casting earrings. It was the craziest thing I ever saw. 
when people wanted jewelry, they went to his house. It's not like they had a storefront out at the side of the village that people went to and did business, and then they all went home at night. This happened in and around the home. In fact, while we were there, we hired a young man in the village to do some work for, for us around the compound. And so in, in essence, what happened was we acted as masters, and he was our servant so that we didn't have to do the work because we had other things that we were there to do. There's a lot of menial tasks that needed to happen, and, and he was willing to do it, so we paid him a wage, and he came in and did the work while we went and evangelized. We were his master. He was our servant. That's the, it's a typical, normal, functioning household in this culture and context. But that's obviously different today. Today, these labor relationships have moved outside of the home, and so while they wouldn't be a part of our household code like they were then, the reality is that the principles are still the same, and they are still just the, the, the gospel still affects them and changes these relationships just as they did when Paul wrote the letter. So today, as we dig into this and we, as, we, as we look at this, we may look at some different names for these roles instead of master and servant, but the principles are the same. So let's just start working through it, and we'll see what we have to see or what God has for us in the passage. Now, he starts out in verse 5, bond servants. Now, that word, depending upon what translation you're reading, even if you're reading in the ESV, depending upon which edition of the ESV you're reading, you could read the word slaves. We've got to deal with that. We can't move into the rest of this passage without dealing with it because we live in a culture that has a very tainted view of slavery. And as well, we should. I don't want to paint a rosy picture for slavery. That's not what I'm here to do. But we have a view of slavery because of slavery of how we have used slavery from our recent history, recent American history, and recent, really what's going on currently. I mean, there's this big now, maybe you've, maybe you've seen the logo, this big end it movement, and maybe a few, I think it was back in February or something like that. Many of you may have put this their, their logo or their icon on your Facebook or Twitter feeds or whatever and with the big red X, or you put the red X on your hand and you wore it around for a day as your demonstration that you want to see slavery ended. And all of, these, all of these big organizations that are fighting against slavery got together and they did this in order to highlight the, the issue, to raise money, to continue the work. And it's a, it's, a worthy, it's a worthy cause. But child slavery and things like that that we're seeing today are, are still drastically different than what was going on in Rome. Slavery in our, in our American history, as we saw it happening in the South where you know, we, we actually fought a war over it because some people wanted to maintain slavery and others didn't. And so, so, so many of the states in, in our nation seceded and they formed their own government to, to maintain their rights to own people. And the slavery was based on race and it was, a, it was really a, a fallen view of the ideal that this, this particular race, African, Ameri or African people, were less than or unworthy or less intelligent or incapable of certain levels of thought. It was a degradation of people not recognizing them as part of God's created order just like we are in the same position and place. And so, so now that's tainted our view. But the reality is this. Slavery has always been a part of every culture. In fact, I like what Tim Keller pointed out as he preached on this. He actually pointed out at two different times, but, but he pointed out that based on the, the study of one of his friends, I think it was a, a, a student from Yale that was working on his doctorate. He's a historian. He pointed out that what his friend had noticed was that as historians ask the question about slavery, they don't ask why 
Christianity, Christians didn't immediately begin to abolish, abolish um, slavery. Like you read this passage, why, why is Paul talking to slaves? Why isn't he just saying, don't have slaves anymore? So a lot of people look at this passage and they want to say, well, Paul's condoning slavery. He's telling them to, to be slaves. This, this historian's point was that we shouldn't be asking the question, why weren't Christians immediately moving to abolish slavery, but what happened in history that changed all of human history to the point that we suddenly understood that we needed to end it? The reality is Christianity happened. The, re the reality is that this passage, along with the teaching of Scripture, demonstrated that people are created equal that we all stand under the same God and He sees us as the same value. And that there's not one that's better than the other. And so really many of the abolitionist movements are actually evangelical Christian movements. Because as the gospel transformed people and converted people, it didn't leave people in this place where they were looking at bond servants and slaves and saying that's okay. They were saying we got to do something different. Slavery has always been and will always be the result of sin, sin and selfish people. They will always try to domineer and dominate and crush others for their will, for their desires. But the gospel does a work. It changes things radically. And so as Paul writes this passage, he's not condoning slavery. He's just bringing the gospel into the midst of the context that it is already that is already there, and he allows it to do its work. And it took for this particular issue many generations, but the gospel did its work and it changed things so much so that no longer do I refer to you as slaves and masters. It changed things so drastically that now we're bosses and managers and employees and volunteers. And slavery, in large part, while it's not completely abolished, in large part is drastically diminished in the world. The gospel did that work. But the gospel doesn't just do work like that. It changes us. It doesn't just change cultures. It changes us. And that's what Paul is getting at. He's not condoning slavery, but he's saying as a slave... The gospel doing its work in you is going to change you. It's going to, to reshape you. It's going to remold you. And so now that's clearly most applicable, not to, not to you as a slave, but to you as a volunteer or to you as an employee. And so that's the words I'm going to use today. I'm going to call, I'm going to call for Christian employees and Christian volunteers to do something because the gospel is doing something. And that's exactly what Paul was getting at. And his first, his first instruction, his first command, bondservants, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Paul is calling Christian employees and volunteers. He's saying that they are expected to obey in the same way they would if Jesus himself were the one giving the direction. If Jesus himself were giving the command. Now that authority only extends so far. If your boss, you go to work one day and your boss says, man, that dude is just not measuring up. I want you to shoot him. He doesn't have authority to do that. I don't think any of you would really go to that extent. I think you understand that that authority only extends so far. But the reality is he doesn't have an ability to command you to sin against God. In that, in that aspect, God becomes your authority and you must do what honors God. 
But the reality is, is that in your general daily life, Christian employees and volunteers are expected to obey their bosses as if it were Jesus himself directing you. Every one of us is under some kind of authority. Every one of us. I'm, I'm the leader of this church. I'm the pastor of this church, and, and I lead our elder board. But you know what? I'm under authority. I'm under your authority. If I stood up here and I began to say that Jesus wasn't required for salvation, you know what you have a right to do, what you should do, what you're expected to do? As the church of Jesus Christ, you should stand and say, you're fired, get out. You pay my salary. And while I will lead you, I am still under your authority. Every one of us. There's not a boss, there's not a CEO of any company that isn't under authority. I used to think, in fact, I got out of the military because I didn't like being owned by people. I mean, they could, I, I would go into work and they would tell me, all right, today we're going to Virginia. And I was in Kentucky. Well, that's difficult, you know. That means i got to go home and pack and get ready and all my plans change. And I don't know how long I'm gone for. It's just a reality. I hated that. I hated that. I didn't want to be under that authority. So I wanted to get out. Then I wanted to be the boss. And I got to be the boss. Well, not the ultimate boss, but I was a middle manager. And you know what that's like if you're a middle manager. It stinks. But what I found was I was never out from under anyone's authority. And while, while my boss began to give me great freedom, the reality was there was always a customer that was paying my bills. And I had to work for him. Well, that customer, they, they would go to work and they had a boss... There's always a boss. There's always somebody in authority. And the reality is, is that we all live in this world that is structured by authority. But God owns it all. He owns every bit of it. There's not one of you that is under someone's authority that's not been ordained or allowed by God. Let me just show you, just illustrate this for you real quickly. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he said, let there be light, you know what happened? Light shone. And for five more days, he gives commands. And you know what happens? Because he has ultimate authority, whatever he said went. And this went on until the point where Adam and Eve fell to temptation and they usurped God's authority and decided to go their own way. You know what usurped authority is, is called? Sin. <laughs> When, when, you, when you do something that's a, apart from God or rebellious to God, you're usurping His authority. You're saying, I'm not going to submit to your authority. I'm going to go my own way. Here's the reality. Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. You know why? Because they were still under God's authority. He still owned it. Jesus, as just before He ascends into heaven, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And then He makes a command. You see, the reality is, is that authority belongs to God. Let me just show you just how far-reaching this is through uh, an Old Testament book. I said, man, I love this book for this purpose. Job. You don't have to turn there. There's no verses going to be on the screen. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. But God has ultimate authority. Job 38. Job has suffered greatly. He's He's, first, he's lost all his kids. He's lost his livestock. He's lost everything he has in the world except for his wife who turns on him and says, curse God and die. And then his friends show up and then instead of patting him on the back and loving on him a little bit, they say, man, you must have, you must have made somebody mad. What did you do to deserve this? He's like, I don't know. I, don't, I didn't do anything to deserve this. They said, no, you screwed up. 
You did something to deserve it. And it goes on. I mean, they go on trying to convince Job. And Job's, he's confused and he's questioning. And he's like, why? Why is this happening to me? And that goes on. I mean, it's a long letter. And there's a lot of discussion until God shows up and ends the discussion. Because he has authority. And he says in chapter 38, verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Now, I'm just going to be honest. If God shows up to me and starts talking, I'm going to wet myself a little bit, I think. Wouldn't you? I mean, God shows up. You've questioned what's going on in your life. I don't like what's happening. Why, why me, God? Who are you? Let me question you. You dress for action and let me question you. And it just goes on. And God just begins to bring it home for him. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On where, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Man. He goes on and just demonstrates his power, his sovereign rule, his authority over all creation. He comes to the point where it's not just the created order. He says in chapter 39, verse 1, Do you know when the mountain goats gave birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they gave birth? You see, God is controlling and sovereignly ruling over Everything, even when the does give birth, he is there and he knows. He says, it, I mean, it just keeps going. This is a, a long, long explanation. I'm telling you, Job is getting it. And he says it in verse 26, Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? We still don't really understand how they work. But we got ideas. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spread his wings toward the south? Is it your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Now, Job doesn't have a clue at this point, but God does. So Job comes to this place where he's like, man, God, I, sh I, I just shut my mouth. I recognize how small and feeble I am in the whole scope of things. You have power and sovereign rule and authority over all things. Who am I to challenge you? And God comes back. He says in chapter 40, verse 8 through 13, he says, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Every time we question God, every time we come against God, every time we act as if he doesn't know what he's doing, every time we walk into work upset with our boss because he's not acting like we would, would you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? I, I got amplification. I can't even get close. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is a proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in all the dust together. Hide, bind their faces in the world below. Then will I acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. When you can be God, you have a right to live under your own authority. 
But the gospel has placed us under his authority. The reality is, without the gospel, we were there. We just couldn't see it. We were outside the garden. We'd been sent away. You see, we all live under this authority. But God's authority, it doesn't just control us. It doesn't just control, doesn't just control the creation. Listen, let's go back to where it started in Job chapter 1. God is holding counsel. His angels are there. It says Satan is there, shows up. He's like, Satan, where you been? He's like, I'm just out doing Satan things, you know, destroying, deceiving, uh, hurting people, not caring for them, and just making a way for myself. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? I don't know what Job would have thought if he'd been there in that moment. But God had a plan. You see, and Satan says, well, God, wait a minute, wait a minute, God. Job worships you. He adores you because you won't let anything happen to him. And he says this in verse 12 in answer to Satan. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. God even has authority over his greatest enemy, Satan. Can only go so far as God allows. And so, and again, counsel in heaven. Satan shows up and he's like, God's like, what you been doing? Deceive and destroy and doing those Satan things. You know, God, that's, that's what I do. He didn't say it just like that, but that's what I think he meant. God says, what about Job? It's like, hey, you protected Job. You didn't, you, you didn't, you didn't let me go far enough. And God says to him in chapter 2, verse 6, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. You think you got a bad boss? You think you got a bad manager? How do you think your suffering and your struggles in your employment and in your volunteer service compares to Job's? The reality is, because of the laws that we've created for employees today, you've got it way better than even the people Paul was talking to directly. Christians, to live in obedience to Christ, we must be submissive and obedient to those in authority over us. If we do not obey our bosses, if we don't walk in submission to those who have been given authority over us by the hand of God, we are in disobedience to our Savior. You can't separate these two. God has the authority, and He's bestowed authority on whom He sees fit. They don't measure up to your standards, probably. But the reality is that authority extends from Him to them, and you are called to obey them. That's a big, high call. And the gospel enables us to see it enables us to understand it, enables us to live in it. The second thing he calls us to, we've got to move a little quicker. My timer's running out. I know you guys don't think I pay attention to that. I do. Be glad I got a timer. <clears throat> the second thing he calls us to, he says it. He says, 
in verse 6. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He's calling us to do the will of God. Christian employees and volunteers can serve the Lord in their work every day. You see, in our culture, we think that in our, in our idea, in our, our perspectives, the things that we have learned is that there is this division and that I come to work and I do some sacred job, some holy job that I've been given by God. But by Paul's instruction, the principle he's setting forth is that every one of us go to work with an opportunity. We can do this because of the gospel. We can go to work and serve God every day. You don't have to have a title in a church to be a minister. You don't have to have a title in a church to be God's man or woman. So the gospel puts an end to the sacred secular divide by empowering Christians to make all their work sacred. Because of the gospel, brothers and sisters, you can go to work with this attitude in obedience to God, recognizing that as you submit to your boss, as you serve your boss, that you are serving the Lord and you are doing His Will. It doesn't matter whether you sell houses, teach in a school, uh, sell insurance, sell cars, um, sell drugs at a pharmacy. There's a bunch of you here, which is really strange. I mean, we got a bunch of drug dealers in our church and we're happy about it. They're legal though. I mean, it's, it's, it's all legit. Whether you swing a hammer and build a house, whether you sit behind a desk at a computer, whatever it is that you're doing, that is sacred work because you, by the power of the gospel, have opportunity to bring God glory in the midst of the world around us. The gospel reorients the gift of God's of work as God intended it to be in our lives. You see, as you go to work, the reality is, is that it's no longer just some secular job that you've got to do. Because of the gospel, by the gospel, God brings work back to the place it was always intended to be. It's always been there. It, it was there before the fall. God gave man and woman commands to go and rule and subdue the earth, to take care of it, to nurture it, to, 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 to fill it and be fruitful, to multiply. He gave them the, these commands to go and to work. They were farmers. That's sacred work. It continues to be sacred work. If you go dig a ditch, you get to dig a ditch for the glory of God. You're doing something very similar to your parents, Adam and Eve. Maybe they weren't digging ditches, but I bet they were digging furrows, planting seeds. You see, the fall didn't change that. It just changed our attitude towards it. So all of a sudden, we're blind to it, and work becomes this, this burden to carry. But by the gospel, God reorients this gift and lets us see it for the gift that it is. This sacred gift to serve Him, to honor Him, to bring Him glory. You see, some of us, we show up to work because, well, i got to work so that I can enjoy my leisure. It's a means to an end. I, I work five days a week so I can enjoy two days off. So that I can have nice stuff in my house. Or if you're really holy, so that I can take a short-term mission trip once a year. Maybe twice if you're super holy. I mean, if you're like a Christian squared, you're going on multiple mission trips, right? So, so you're doing this, this, you're, you're, you're suffering through work so that you can 
go do these trips. In fact, I can remember going on a short-term mission trip and this woman I respected says, I do what I do at home so that I can come and do this as if the short-term mission trip she was on was more worthy and more glorifying to God than what she did the other 360, maybe 358 days a year, whatever. The reality is this, brothers and sisters, your work is a gift from God. And if you approach it as just a simply a means to an end or a way that supplies you so you can go and do God's work, you're missing the point. It is all God's work. Every bit of it. You might be a trash collector. That's God's work. And let me tell you, we don't have a trash collector. You might be somebody who's, who cleans toilets for a living. We don't have somebody that does that. This is not a nice place to live anymore. It's terrible. We need you. God has given you gifts and abilities to go and work in the world that you might bring Him glory. See, the gospel reorients it. It makes all of our work sacred so that we can serve God every day. Some of us work as a source of our identity. See, we go to the other extreme. It's not just a, a means to an end. It's the source of our identity. It's how we, how we build our, our perspective of who we are. And you overdo it. You go too far and you give all your life to it and you don't know how to rest. You don't know how to trust God in it. Either extreme, both of these miss it. They miss the gift. And you either make a God out of it or you belittle the gift because you don't know how to appreciate it. Both demonstrate that we have lost sight of what God has done for us in the gospel. How He has blessed us with good work to do. Because all work is service to God, it should be done to the best of our ability. It seems like to me, and this is just an opinion, I don't have any statistics to prove this, but it seems like to me that we live in a time when people want to just do the bare minimum. You know, I just want to get by. I just want to just skate through. Just I don't really want to be noticed too much. I just want to do just enough to accomplish my goals. Paul says that's not the way this works. He says, as we obey, as, as we obey our boss and serve God by serving our boss, as we, as we do this work as the will of God, he's saying, don't do it just for eye service, just for recognition. And when, just when people are looking, he says, do it to the best of your ability because it is service to God. You see, these principles are all stacked in there. And there's a reality that most of us, I think most of us go to work. Maybe not planning in the morning of how we're going to get by, but throughout the day finding ways to get by. Personal email, Facebook, Twitter, sneaking out back for a smoke when it's not break time. I'm guilty of all those. How about you? I used to, before I was a boss... It was a lot different once I was a boss and I had a different perspective, but I used to hang out and just talk on the hangar floor until I saw the boss coming. See, that's total denial of the fact that I'm serving God. Paul calls us to a high calling. He says that we should be doing this with the, with the utmost intention, the best of our ability, not simply to please men, but as the will of God. 
This sacred job that He has given us is a gift and should be done with our greatest ability, with our greatest purpose. Christians, we should be the hardest working, the most dependable employees, not because we are the most skillful or the most experienced, but because we recognize that we are not just serving the man. I used to have this big problem that I was just making people money. It just drove me nuts. I'm just making that dude rich. Totally missing the, the, the perspective that God was my ultimate authority and that I was doing His will. When I gained that perspective, my work ethic immediately changed because I was serving my God. The third principle, we'll push through these pretty quickly. The third principle, Christian employees and volunteers work and serve for the good of others. Listen to this. He says it in verse uh, 7. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. So the idea is, is that you are certainly working for God, but it should be beneficial to other people. Christian employees and volunteers work and serve for the good of others. Most of us go to get a paycheck. How many of you are going to go to work tomorrow morning thinking, I just, I'm here to get my paycheck? That's the common idea. That's the common perspective. That's what we do. I need a paycheck so that I can do the things I want to do, so that I can buy a house, so that I can get a car, so that I can buy the things I want, so that I can provide for a family, so that I can do all these things. I just need a paycheck. The gospel changes that. You see, that's a worldly perspective. It's a perspective that's given to us from the world around us. Go back to, to what Paul says in the beginning of this letter. When he opened it up, he says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. There's nothing we're in lack of. There's nothing we're in need of. Oh, well, man, what, what happens if my lights get turned off or, or, or I can't buy my food? Your brothers and sisters are here. We will help you. What happens if I can't pay my phone bill or watch my cable TV or I have to give up Netflix? Deal with it. You'll keep living. Life will go on. I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to get foreclosed on. Jesus was homeless. And he actually, when one man came to him and said he was going to follow him, Jesus responded by saying, Look, the birds of the air have nests, and the foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But the Lord was never in need. You get that? If you're going to work to get a paycheck, and that's the sole purpose of you going to work, then you're missing what God has provided you with in the gospel. Think back just to the beginning of this section where Paul is calling people. He says, be, uh, don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. The point, if you'll remember back in that sermon, it was that, that we can enjoy the world, but we can enjoy too much of it. The reality is most of us are looking for a paycheck, not simply so that we can have the necessities of life, but so that we can enjoy the blessings or the benefits of this world. I had a friend who wouldn't go to work because he'd make less money at McDonald's than he did on welfare. He actually went to this church for a while, and when we quit standing next to him and paying his bills, quit coming to the church. It's pitiful. 
The reality is this. We can enjoy this world. But most of, it are, most of us are enjoying way more of it than we need to. And we're enabled by that, by the jobs we have. God has blessed us. We are richer than any culture in the history of, a, uh, of the world. We, we, we have more on a, on a grand scale than any other culture in the world. And yet we, we still struggle and fight. I, I need to get more. I need a bigger paycheck. I want more because we're looking for the blessings in our creation rather than the blessings from the Creator. Brothers and sisters, you are called to work not to get a paycheck, but to serve God, to glorify Him, and to be a blessing to all. I spent about 20 years in a job outside this pastorate before I... I, even began planting the church. I was about 20 years into that career. Many of those years, I was, I was a boss to other people. And I never had one person come to me and say, I need a raise so that I can be a blessing to other people. Never once. I need more so that I can bless people further. Nobody ever came to me and said, man, I sure appreciate my job because it enables people to move from one place to another, to see family members that are distant, to, to move uh, uh, equipment and, and goods for all across the world. No one ever came to me appreciating their job because it was a benefit to anybody's life. And the vast majority of my time in service in that role, I didn't enjoy the benefit that it provided to the world around me. I learned to. But the reality is most of us don't, we don't hold this perspective. Your job, there's, there's obvious limitations. You can't strip to the glory of God. You can't prostitute yourself to the glory of God. You can't go rob a bank to the glory of God. But the reality is this, is that your work has been given to you by God for His glory and the good of all around you. Some of that is through the service you provide and some of that is through the money that's provided to you that it might bless others, not simply build you a kingdom on this earth. And finally, the last perspective, he says it to Christian employees. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Christian employees and volunteers can look to Jesus for their reward. We need to look up. Brothers and sisters, we need to look up. We need to look beyond this moment, this, this, this wisp of smoke in the whole scheme of eternity. We need to look beyond it. We can't do that as long as all we're trying to do is build a home in this place. This is not our home. If you feel at ease and are at rest in this place, you have something wrong. You are denying the work of the Spirit of God in you if you can feel good about being here. There should be something happening as you submit yourself to the Spirit, as you allow yourself, as you stand in His way and are filled by Him, there should be something happening that leaves you longing for more of Him. Find your reward and your satisfaction in Him. 
to be completed and find joy and happiness and peace in Him. If you're stressed because you don't have enough bank, a big enough bank account, and you're working hard to fill that bank account, you've forgotten the gospel. If you are denying the authority that your boss has because you don't like the way he does things, then you're just going to do it your own way anyway. You are denying the gospel and you have forgotten the authority that God has. Brothers and sisters, if you are finding your identity in, in, in the pats on the back and the, and the pay raises, and you're feeling good about yourself because what other people are saying about you, you have forgotten the name that God has given you in the gospel. You are no longer sinner, you are saint. You are no longer uh, a, a distant, you are child, you are sons, you are daughters. You are loved, you are accepted, you are approved. You see, when we look to our work and when we deny the authority that comes through our bosses, we deny the gospel when we look to our work for more than what it's ever intended to do when we make a god out of it rather than receive it as a gift from god we deny the gospel but finally some of you are bosses some of you exercise authority some of you manage just real quickly concisely everything i've said applies directly to you as well Christian bosses and managers are no different in God's sight than employees and volunteers. And he says, you do the very same things. If you go to work tomorrow and you have people under your authority, you better treat them like Jesus has treated you. Or you're denying the gospel. If you go to work tomorrow and you have people under your authority, rather than threaten them and try to rule them with fear, you reach out to them with truth, grace, and mercy. See, the gospel levels the playing field. In our culture where we revere CEOs and leaders and people with authority and deny the worth of people who do things that we see as less, the gospel levels it all. We're all recipients of grace. In the, in the cross, we're all recipients of grace. There's none of us that deserve to be here. There's none of us that deserve the blessings. There's none of us that deserve the inheritance. There's none of us that deserve the name. And we're all people under authority. Bosses, you may exercise authority, but you're under authority. And the expectation is that you do it like Jesus has done it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that the gospel does in us, how it's changing us and transforming us. God, I would just ask in this moment, well, I know, I know this. I, I know it because I, I know these people, Father. There are, there are people in this room that have difficulty with their boss. And they're struggling to submit. Would you remind them? Remind them of how your son submitted to an authority that he didn't have to. Remind them of how he was humbled, Father. Spirit, 
you do your work in us? Would you fill us? Would you change our hearts? Would you break our rebellious spirits so that we can walk in line with the commands that come from the gospel? Would you enable us to walk in strength and in power even if that means humbly and gently Thank you. Thank you for changing me. Thank you for the knowledge that you can change us each and every one. May, may, may we submit to you, God. In this moment, will you just help us, help us to submit to you completely and fully. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.